Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you're welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, we have a special edition this week because on Saturday, Michal Martin was elected Taoiseach, 140 days after the general election and a few hours later he announced his cabinet. We now have a government in place but some commentators have suggested that no government in the history of the state has faced into a more daunting task. To look at who's in and how they will govern and what their first big hurdles are, I'm joined now by Danny McConnell, political editor of the Irish Examiner. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Mick, thanks for having me. Danny, I suppose... First deal with what you might call the, the human element of things. Michal Martin elected Taoiseach after 31 years in the Dáil, nine in opposition. I think it's fair to say he's well regarded by many in politics on a personal level. He's had his own family tragedies and he got, he got quite emotional in his acceptance speech, especially when he referenced his parents and the close-knit community he came from. He certainly did, Mick. And uh, I suppose it's a remarkable testament to his political staying power that he is, you know, as you rightly say, he's been so long in the doll, so long as opposition leader, bringing his party back from the brink in 2011 after their near routing in in, in that election. You know, they, they went from 76 seats to 20 and then they went on to lose Brian Lennon, you know, prematurely later on that year as well. So they were down to 19 seats. So he has literally walked his party back from the precipice of its own viability, really. And, and I remember vividly in 2011, there were senior members of the party actually questioning the future of the party, it's certainly not back to the force it once was. There's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, Fianna Fáil had a very bad election in February of this year, but just given, I suppose, he was rescued by the fact that Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael had such a bad election as well that you end up with the three medium-sized parties rather than any large party. Um, And, you know, after 140 days, as you said, you know, the government was formally uh, established yesterday following a pretty comfortable vote in in the Dáil Chamber. Yeah, and just one other element in terms of the man himself. I just thought it was a bit interesting. Later on, yes, it was in there and um, after the cabinet was announced, Leo Varadkar gave a speech and he made a point of making a reference to Michal Martin's wife, Mary, and talking about her being such a huge support to him. And what struck me about it was, like the two men, um, Varadkar and Martin, have never had apparently a great personal relationship but perhaps there, Leo Varadkar was acknowledging the difficult times the Martin family have had over the years. And um, who knows, it might be heralding a new uh, personal relationship between the two of them. Well, it's definitely a new, it's a new chapter in their relationship. You know, I mean, they have found each, each other at odds. You know, um, I, I've interviewed both men numerous times and both of them have, have remarked that they, what they would consider to be a professional relationship with them. They're not personally warm. That may change now because they're going to obviously have to start working together rather than in opposition uh, to each other now. So uh, I think that's going to be quite interesting. That dynamic is going to be quite key uh, because, you know, there is still what I question, you know, a, a high degree of distrust and latent sort of suspicion between the two old enemies. 
Uh, and it'll be very one of the key jobs that I think Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin will have between themselves is to make sure that they one can keep a lid on that sort of internal strife within government. Two that they can sort of spot the sort of problems before they uh, escalate into proper crises. And three that they can ensure that you know the good sort of will that has are still fostered between the likes of say Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue over four budgets in, during confidence and supply can permeate out to, to other departments and, and other ministries. But yet, you know, those suspicions very much still pertain and there's still an awful lot of people within both parties who are very uncomfortable with the idea of going into government together. Yeah, and the other thing that strikes me just about the day that was in it and all, Danny, historic certainly in terms of, uh, and I think Leo Varadkar actually put it well in that in, when he said in uh, his speech that civil war politics had ended in the country a long time ago and now it was going to end in Parliament and effectively we were burying civil war politics and all that's historic and it's historic in terms of taking place in the convention centre rather than the doll. But when you get down to brass tacks, what we're talking about here is a coalition government in which the two main parties from which the Taoiseach and Tanishta will be both drawn on a rotating basis actually both lost the election, both lost seats, both were weakened by the election, yet now they're heading into government facing what is possibly the most hostile environment any government has faced. Um, as, as the fellow once said, if I, if I was trying to find a place, I wouldn't start from here. Certainly not. I mean, any like the, the election earlier this year was fought on a very different economic landscape. You know, obviously the threat of Brexit was there, but no one talked about COVID-19 or the impact of COVID-19. This has been a bolt out of the blue. This has upended not only the political system, but economic life and society in this country and across the world. Um, so therefore, the sort of the mindset or the, the landscape that's facing, particularly Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue as they start their jobs tomorrow as finance minister and, and public expenditure minister, is very different where I think any of them would have anticipated earlier this year. It's interesting, I did an issue with Michael McGrath for tomorrow's paper earlier today and, you know, one of the key questions I asked him was, you know, about austerity and whether austerity would feature um, as part of his plans. And he made it very clear that it's not on his horizon. You know, even though you had the likes of Lucinda Crichton, a former junior minister for European affairs, writing in this morning's business post, making it very clear that, you know, ruling out austerity is essentially naive and it's just not it's just not uh, tenable. Michael McGrath made, made it very clear to me that, you know, investment and growing the economy and priming the economy in a sort of Keynesian-style economics is, 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 the, is the mantra they're following at the moment. But how sustainable that is in the long run, you know, given the amount of money that we're going to have to borrow this year, remains to be seen. But it was an interesting insight as to the thinking, you know, as the government will essentially start its, its, its work tomorrow morning. Yeah, I mean, that word, Danny, and it's something that's come up a lot, and it's come, <laughs> what does it mean these days, austerity? Does that mean effectively that if it's deemed necessary to have any cutbacks or any... Uh, tax increases is that automatically labelled austerity? Yeah, I think. Well, he certainly seemed to characterise it as any sort of cuts in public spending or cuts to services, and he said that's not in focus or that's not the focus of his thinking as of now. He did qualify that a little bit by saying, you know, there, undoubtedly there will be difficult decisions to be made, but he made it very clear that you know cuts to spending won't be uh, considered in the short run. Uh, and certainly he, they were making it very clear that no cuts to capital spending 
are you know are on the table at the moment because that was one of the big mistakes made of the last Fianna Fáil government and the last uh, Fine Gael government in twenty from twenty eight to twenty twelve. There were huge cuts in capital spending because essentially it was much easier to cut uh, on you know future future projects than cutting day to day spending uh, because they were under the cost of the troika. We're not under the same sort of cost this time because we're still able to borrow in the international markets. But how long we're able to do that, again, is anybody's guess. Uh, there is a favourable wind around Ireland at the moment. And I think in the current international uh, environment, we're still able to borrow money at very cheap prices uh, at the moment. But we, we're going into this crisis with a very large amount of hangover debt from, from the last crisis. So we're not in a good like we're not in a good fiscal space anyway. We still have a very large debt. So we're only adding to that debt. Um, so, but you know, what I did was taken by what Michael McGrath said very clearly was, you know, don't be thinking we're going down the route of say slashing five or six billion out of this year's budget. That simply won't happen. Yeah, and well, uh, yeah, but it's just uh, that term austerity. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I, I think there's general consensus that the amount of cutbacks that were brought in, and particularly how they hit the weakest and the most vulnerable in society after the 2008 economic crash, there's no question that could be labelled austerity but it just strikes me that if there's any cutbacks at all and the nature of, of, of the economics we've had over the last 100 years is, you know, the, the, there's a certain cycle where you may have to cut back at times does that automatically become labelled austerity now uh, in, in sort of a, a political attempt to associate it with the regime that was um, operated there post-2008 but look anyway that, that, that that's an issue for a different day for today. The cabinet. Um, any surprises in it, Danny? Yeah, I think there were num- numerous surprises. Uh, I think in terms of the, I suppose the happy surprises, if you want to call it that way. I think the appointment of Helen McIntyre to the Department of Justice was certainly a surprise. I think it was anticipated that she would certainly make the cabinet. The fact that she's gone into what is a very heavy hitting ministry, a very important ministry. It's one of the few. Uh, cabinet ministries that still requires guard of security and guard of drivers and all that kind of stuff. She obviously gets you know intelligence briefings and kind of the important briefings as to the security of the state. So it's a very important, uh, legislatively heavy uh, department, uh, and she will have her work cut out for it because again, this has been a, a ministry that has caused untold misery and damage to several Fine Gael ministers and a couple of guard of commissioners, uh, which you've been very familiar with, Mick, over the last few years. And the reform agenda in that department has not yet been has not yet been finalised. So that's one. Norma Foley on the Fianna Fáil side was the big surprise. Yeah, I think there had been talk that Anne Rabbit would be the female cabinet attendee from for Fianna Fáil, but she was overlooked. And Norma Foley, a first time TD, but a vastly experienced county councillor, a former teacher as well, very very uh, well got with Michal Martin clearly. Uh, and he's decided to. He's obviously clearly said that she's a safer pair of hands at the cabinet table than Anne Rabbit. Uh, and he's put her into the education brief, which is his first, which was his first cabinet briefing as well. So he obviously sees a similarity between himself and her uh, and herself. In terms of the other surprises, I think um, I think it was quite interesting that Simon Harris has moved been moved from health um, and has been given uh, this new department for higher education. You know, this has obviously been a, a kind of a pet project of Michal Martin. Again, you know, they had had all have made a virtue of the fact that you know the third level sector has been often neglected by this government or that the last government and the previous government. Uh, so, and it gets Simon Harris out of that very very tricky department where he's been there for four years. It's the longest any person has served in that department in in decades. Um, but you know, he would walk out with his reputation somewhat. Uh, recovered, I suppose, given his handling of the COVID crisis. And the other big surprise, I would think, in the whole cabinet is the inclusion of Stephen Donnelly ahead of Derek Leary. Uh, I think there'd been a large 
body of opinion. I think virtually every commentator, including myself, had had Derek Leary as a sure thing, as a best, safe bet, uh, given he's the deputy leader of Fianna Fáil. And there was, uh, there was a visceral response uh, amongst Fianna Fáil TDs yesterday to his, I suppose, exclusion from the full cabinet ranks. He will sit at the cabinet table. He will be a, he will be a super junior as, as serving as chief whip, but he's not. He doesn't have a control of a full ministry, and that was a surprise. The inclusion of Stephen Donnelly, who many, many in Fianna Fáil see as a, as a kind of a blow-in, he's only in the party since 2017, having left the Social Democrats. For him to get the health portfolio, while others like Derek Leary, Thomas Byrne, Jim O'Callaghan, and, and many other long-serving TDs, uh, you know, have been left uh, empty-handed. Has certainly not gone down well amongst the uh, the sort of the rank and file members of the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. Yeah, and it is, I think it's a very interesting one actually. And is it significant, Danny, that health and housing, the two major issues in the last election, the two issues that drove this so-called mandate for change, more a mood for change, that Fianna Fáil have immediately gone in and uh, taken those two? Well, they were the ones that they wanted, Mick. And in fairness, like Michal Martin had made a virtue about seeking health and housing in the talks, his ter- yeah, so had his team. What we had, as we were reporting earlier this week, you know, Fine Gael had made clear that, you know, uh, we have been almost a decade, nine years plus in, in, in health. Maybe it's time to, to hand it over. Uh, and they certainly didn't make a virtue of, of keeping health, you know, whereas Fine Gael had certainly made a virtue of wanting to keep foreign affairs for Simon Coveney and Brexit and the Department of Justice. Uh, they did not make the same push to keep health, and clearly, notwithstanding Simon Harris's efforts as they would see it, uh, they were more than happy to hand it off to to either either Fianna Fáil or the Greens. And it had been speculated during the week that that the Greens may even get health, but ultimately, um, Fianna Fáil were landed with it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, as I said, Simon Harris will probably have a, a slightly easier run of it in this new Department of Higher Education. He certainly won't be in as many contentious rows as, as he has been. Um, but it'd be very interesting to see how Stephen Donnelly picks up that baton, particularly when we're still mid-pandemic you know, uh, and the, the restrictions are not yet fully lifted. Um, and I think it's a curious decision to move, you know, at a time when you're already moving the Taoiseach out of position. I think it was a curious decision to move Simon Harris out of the Department of Health. I think a lot of people would have said that exactly, you know, and especially, I mean, certainly in recent months, he's been perceived as doing a good job there. Yeah, it's difficult to know whether he himself regards it with relief or, or uh, whether he'd prefer to stay there. Helen McEntee and Justice, Danny, one thing I'd say about that, um, Charlie Flanagan, the, the outgoing minister, and um, I've certainly, in terms of the stuff I've covered, I've been involved in a lot of stuff and there's a lot of things I would have um, had issue with him about in terms of his handling in that. But I have to say, nevertheless, compared to some of his predecessors, he showed an ability to stand back and and uh, take the heat and to, to do what was required in the job, nearly in an understated manner. And it's a very tricky portfolio. And Helen McEntee, as you say, she's done well in Europe, but you'd wonder, does she have the kind of experience that uh, that might be required in there? Well, I mean, again, having spoken to Charlie Flanagan on, on countless occasions and previous ministers for justice, you know, they all say is that the one thing that they can never really get their heads around is just how legislatively heavy it is. It probably is the department that brings in most legislation through through the Oireachtas, which means you're spending an awful lot of time in the Dáil Chamber on your feet, uh, either defending legislation or arguing its case, and then through the Shannon. Um, and it's also a department which is vast in terms of its scope, it's vast in terms of its, um, in terms of the areas that it's co- it covers. And as we spoke about previously, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a department that has grappled with uh, cultural issues around, you know, secrecy and a lack of transparency. 
And, you know, I think they were to the fore of the issues that almost toppled Leo Varadkar's government back in late 2017 around the handling of information relating to Morris McCabe, etc. So, and I think there was a recognition then that the department was not fit for purpose. I think the, t- the former teacher, Leo Varadkar, actually used that phrase, saying it wasn't fit for purpose. So, like, it is a daunting challenge for Helen McEntee, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, you know, whether Leo Varadkar has given her a job that's too big for her as I think many people would say he did with Owen Murphy his buddy in terms of housing in the last portfolio or in the last government um, remains to be seen but I mean she is a diligent worker she has shown an ability to take a complex brief i.e. Brexit uh, and be able to perform uh, competently at, at the least you know in, in relation to that now she did always I suppose have the, the protection of Simon Coveney our senior minister and the Taoiseach there as well uh, so she, she will be more exposed here uh, there obviously are will be guard issues around guard of pay and you know retention of guardy and you know, the program of I suppose increasing the numbers in the force that, that Charlie Flanagan had begun. I think you know one of the big lessons we've seen with Fine Gael since the departure of Alan Shatter is that neither Francis Fitzgerald or Charlie Flanagan were seen as the great reformers that Alan Shatter was. You know, Alan Shatter really kind of sought to reform the justice system in this country. Now he ran into his own many roadblocks due to his own inimitable style. And you know his handling of various issues, but I think he did. I think he would be recognised as bringing a kind of a reforming zeal to the to the department, um, where which was not uh, followed up by Francis Fitzgerald, who essentially allowed the legal services bill to be watered down significant, significantly, in my view, to the interests of the of the legal profession and not not the consumer. Um, and Charlie Flanagan, I think, would be open to criticism over his handling of the judicial appointments bill. You know, he was more than ha- or seemed more than happy to sit through hours and hours and hours of filibuster in the Shannad, whereas I think he could have, if he was more keen on the, the legislation, he would have sought to not waste as much time and, uh, and and see it over the line. But again, you know, he, uh, he he made it clear, I think, towards the end of that debate that he wasn't that keen on that legislation or certain elements of, of it. Yeah, I think I think an awful lot of people in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael weren't keen. Um, no, the other thing, of course, Danny, and I think you're spot on, actually, in terms of your analysis of, of, of the whole justice area there, I, I, I concur with the whole thing. Geography, look, in in a perfect world, best people for best positions, et cetera, et cetera. In the real world of politics, geography always has mattered. As you said, Derek Kaleri, everyone assumed he was going to be in there, would have perfectly fulfilled also the role of a minister for the West, being from uh, the Mayo constituency, as it is from Donegal all the way down to Tralee in County Kerry. You ain't got no senior minister. Is that something of an oversight? Is it something that could come back and haunt him? Well, it's been very interesting because we've had several ministers out today, both on radio and on television, um, basically highlighting the fact that both Hildegard Nocton, who's a Galway uh, West uh, TD, and Darren Cleary's from Mayo, um, will essentially be sitting at the cabinet table, and therefore that issue is, you know, the sort of description that the West is not looked after, or that sort of Western Seaboard is not looked after, at, uh, you know, present at the cabinet table, uh, doesn't stack up. Um, I think it was Michael Fitzmaurice who held up a very visual graphic of a big, you know, red block from Donegal down to, to Limerick, if not further, um, showing the absence of any sort of cabinet minister. What was a sort of stark uh, kind of uh, portrayal of just how imbalanced geographically this particular cabinet is. Huge concentration in Dublin. Uh, for obvious reasons, a huge concentration in Cork State Central for obvious reasons. Um, um, but I think what you're likely to see now is that that geographical imbalance uh, be addressed in the announcement of the junior ministries. There's going to be 20 of them. So I think you're going to hear a fair old smattering of those in all those uh, kind of uh, blocks down along the, the, the Western Seaboard. 
I've always had an issue with this, Mick, in terms of whether or not geography is such a big issue. I think, well, it makes people feel an awful lot better. I've, I've really struggled to find strong evidence to say that having a minister, at, you know, is of huge benefit to a particular individual constituency. Um, you know, and, you know, you could look at you could look at counties like Donegal, which have had consistent presence of you know, ministers at the table, and yet it has struggled in terms of infrastructure, connectivity, broadband issues, all the rest of. So uh, Mayo, you could look at the same. It had a former teacher there for six years. The roads to Mayo are probably among some of the worst in the country. Connectivity in Mayo is still really bad. So you again, how how valuable really is it? from a geographical point of view to having a minister from your constituency it might make you feel a bit better saying that your 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 locality might might have a you know your your guy you know at at the table but i think there is a there is an argument to be made that it's not as important as maybe some people have traditionally seen it as being i think ability is obviously far more important and i think you know ability uh sorry ability and i i think you know the gender thing is probably more important now and i think you know this government has been criticized as well for the lack of women sitting at the cabinet table yeah, in terms of geography, absolutely, Danny. I think to a certain extent, as you mentioned it yourself, the feeling, it's a perception rather than any reality. There's also, I'd suggest, an overhang from history. There's a stretch of road there in Mayo that was, and I recall this years and years ago, you go there, suddenly you're, you're going along these country roads and suddenly something opens up into this beautiful, wide, modern road, the yellow brick road as you hit Mayo. That basically dated from the times of Parig Flynn back in the 1980s when there was a time that ministers used their influence and they were able to get this and that for the constituency. But I think you're right, but the key is, as you say, it's a feeling and whether that, uh, whether that will actually matter in the end, we'll have to wait and see. As you mentioned, Danny, gender as well, not great. There's only, what is it, four senior women in the cabinet now? Yeah, yeah, the four. So Helen McEntee, Heather Humphreys, Catherine Martin and Norma Foley are the four. And then obviously you've got Pippa Hackett, uh, who is, you know, the surprise package from from the Shannon for the Green Party um, as a super junior and Hildegard Nocton for Fine Gael. So you six of the 18 who sit at the cabinet table are women. Not great. Uh, and certainly, you know, um, that that is an issue I think will also have to be addressed when the junior ranks are... are um, uh, RNS. But I think, you know, I think there was a kind of a pragmatic view being taken by a lot of people, including myself, who were looking at the political realities of who was going to be appointed to cabinet. It was very clear there were certain bankers that both Leo Varadkar and, and Michal Martin had to include in their ranks, i.e. Michael McGrath in the same consistency as Michal Martin. Um, you know, Simon Coveney had to be included for Leo Varadkar, so did Pascal Donoghue. Um, so, you know, with only six seats each at the cabinet table, your options were limited, you know, significantly when you had to kind of get those key players involved. And, you know, and that's probably what cost Eric Hillary, you know, ultimately his view was, you know, or his his slot as a senior minister was that, you know, he had to try and, Michal Martin had to try and facilitate um, a sort of geographical spread. He had to try and address the gender uh, issue to some degree in terms of including Norma Foley there as well. Um, but again, you know, no one who had, who was doing the sort of speculation beforehand would have seen Derek O'Leary out of cabinet, and very few were putting Stephen Donnelly in cabinet. Um, and you know, there had been talk around Thomas Byrne from me these being in ahead of you know, um, uh, been in ahead of uh, Barry Cowan, and there's been talk about whether Jim O'Callaghan or or Dara Bryan would be the Dublin minister. Um, and ultimately, he, you know, so like you've got some senior heavy hitters in Fianna Fáil in in terms of the likes of. You know, Jim O'Callaghan, um, Thomas Byrne and, and Derek Leary not sitting at the full cabinet table uh, or as, as full cabinet ministers. 
and that's likely to 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 lead to a sort of residual kind of lingering kind of unhappiness. I would have thought amongst some of Michal Martins, who would have been some of his loudest lieutenants and chief uh, cheerleaders. Yeah, I suppose it's an occupational hazard for an awful lot of leaders when there's only so many jobs to go around. At the top, Danny, you know, naturally things are policy based, getting things done, but there's no doubt from everything you hear, the personal relationships between the leaders, particularly when you've three parties, is going to be vital. And as as we said earlier, um, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar, so far, wouldn't bit of a kind of a touchy relationship with them. You'd wonder then, will that be, be have a, a greater emphasis on Eamon Ryan being the I know, referee might be too hard a way of putting it, but perhaps the, the oil that uh, smooths passage there in terms of uh, getting the, the, the car on the road or might be Eamon Ryan I might well be Catherine Martin, we'll talk about that again, but uh, those personal relationships will be important, won't they? Uh, I would think in a coalition of three ways I think the personalities will matter far more than any policy. I think, you know, the policies in the document are vague enough in places. Um, but if this government is to last for the five years, uh, I think ultimately think it, it has to be down to the the building of trust between the three leaders, uh, the building of good working relationships. Um, and, you know, I think I go back to what Michael Noonan said at the start of the Labour Fine Gael government in 2011. He said, you can have all the policies you want, but they don't mean a matter if you can't get on and if you can't operate together. Uh, and I think that's a sage lesson in terms of, you know, policies can come and go, but if trust breaks down between a coalition, it, it, it really is game over. Um, and I think we saw that when, I think, in the Fine Gael Labour government under Joan Burton and Enda Kenny, by the end of it, the trust had really broken down and it therefore couldn't operate any further. So therefore, it, you know, it, the election was called. Uh, and I think also as well, you know, you saw, going back to previously, you know, Dick Spring and Albert Reynolds couldn't work together, even though mo- most people had said, you know, Fianna Fáil and, and Labour could could have decades in power together because they're very naturally aligned in terms of policies. Um, but yet the personalities couldn't work, and that 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 fell asunder very quickly. So personalities really really matter. Um, and I think you know one one of the things I've been asking about of a lot of the key players over the last few days is what is the mechanism by which you know you're going to solve rows or get over disagreements. And it's very clear. And Michael Martin told me the other night that you know that there'll be a kind of essentially an inner cabinet committee of the three leaders, which they'll use as a clearinghouse to address all these sort of, you know, kind of mounting problems or disagreements or rows that are likely to happen uh, in a coalition government. Um, So that dynamic is going to be absolutely key. And if that relationship breaks down, then this, there's literally no hope of it it lasting. The other thing, Mick, I would say is that what will be fascinating to watch as well is that transition back to Fine Gael, that transition back to when Leo Varadkar is due to take over. You know, that has the potential to be very destabilising because, you know, if the Greens are coming under huge pressure, either under the the opinion polls or they're feeling that their, um, they're feeling that their agenda is not being kind of adhered to properly, you could see that becoming a real pinch point and a, a kind of a point of real contention. Definitely. No, as we say, there's huge challenges there, very hostile environment in so many different ways. Two of the first things they're going to have to reckon with are um, the COVID payment. When is that going to be cut back? Is it going to be phased further? What's going to be the fallout from that? I think that's possibly a huge thing. The other thing, and this was highlighted at the weekend, they're going to have a specific jobs initiative. And is it is it the ambition to have that in place before... Uh, summer break end of end of July beginning of August that's definitely the plan Mick again talking to Michael McGrath today he made it very clear that that's going to be like it's kind of within the next 100 days so you're t- definitely talking uh, before the summer break and what you're see- going to see is this 
multi-billion euro stimulus package aimed at job supports, getting people back to work. He also made it very clear that the kind of the the support structures that are there by way of the emergency payments, the you know kind of weight supplement payments, will essentially be there as long as they're needed. You know, so the hope would be that in the, in the coming weeks, starting from tomorrow, that you know a huge number of companies will begin to drift back to work, and therefore those payments will not be needed anymore. But he certainly left open to me. He left open the door to the idea that those payments will will could very well continue on beyond uh, the August tenth deadline that they're there until at the moment. So that'll be fascinating again to watch because already what you've seen is the the, the parties of the hard left call for those payments to to almost remain in place long after that they were ever intended to initially. You know, we've had calls for the, the minimum wage to increase to fifteen euro an hour and you know free bikes for everybody. You you you've seen this kind of almost. Yeah, wish list from from the hard left. You know, as things uh, need to continue. But you know, what the argument from the likes of Pascal Dunahoo and others is that you know we're going to borrow thirty billion this year. That's not sustainable, and it clearly isn't sustainable. So we're going to have to get some control on the public finances very very quickly. Um, and that ultimately will lead to difficult decisions, as Michael McGrath told me earlier on today. Um, but you know, whether it actually means cuts or reductions in the services remains to be seen. But again. This is a government with a with a comfortable enough majority, so they're certainly in, they they have the space and the scope to make the difficult decisions that that could be needed in the national interest, rather than sort of just fudging them as they did do uh, when they were in the minority government for the last four years. Yeah, I still think that whenever the time comes for that COVID payment to be cut, there's going to be uh, one hell of a racket, understandably, and I don't mean racket in a pejorative sense, but there's there's going to be an awful lot of people unhappy because you're talking about a situation of people who were in full employment prior to the outbreak of the pandemic, ultimately being out of employment and then going straight back from what three fifty a week to uh, two hundred and three for a single person. So, so it's going to be it's going to be really tough. One other thing, Danny, that emerged today, I think it was, just found this a bit interesting. We know that the Greens uh, have a major thing in terms of ending direct provision. That was agreed to in the programme of government. And then we hear today that direct provision is moving from the Department of Justice. Something I have to say, having worked in the area and, and looked at some of it, sorry, worked as a journalist and looked at some of it, is something I, I would agree with and a lot of people have called for. I don't think it was suited for justice. But interestingly, where it's moving is to the new Department of Children uh, being run by Green Party Minister Roderick O'Gorman. Fascinating uh, move, Mick. I suppose Roderick O'Gorman was one of the, the Green negotiators who made direct provision such a key issue. Like They literally put it down as a red line issue that they wanted a commitment that it would end over the term of a government. Um, and, you know, some cynical Fine Gaelers have told me today, yeah, look, I mean, it's a classic way of, of, of passing this or, you know, of engaging in a hospital pass uh, <laughs> uh, to, to, a new, to a newbie. Like, so... Um, what will be interesting is just like obviously direct provision has been much criticised for the standards, the length of time people are, are in it, the the billion euro plus that that has been spent on it since, since its inception. The clearly the huge sums of money that private contractors are making um, out of it. Sometimes I will argue where they're providing less than quality services to to those poor people who are stuck in it, uh, to say the very least. No question, the world. And uh, I, I think ultimately what we've seen build up amongst the justice establishment is this idea that if we made the direct provision system too attractive, we'd end up getting swamped by more and more immigrants. I find that a very insulting argument in in the context of our own tradition and history of emigration in this country. Um, And I also think it's insulting to the people who have had to be gone through that, that process and had to wait through that process for so long. I don't think it's beyond 
the scope or the imagination of officials to speed up the immigration process or the asylum progress or and and give people an answer yay or nay within a short short much shorter period of time it'll be very interesting to see because Roderick O'Gorman has a very wide brief he's got children's he's got disability he's got equality as well that's a huge brief for him to kind of get to get to grips with but given the fact that they have made direct provisions such a key issue in, in the election and then also in the program for government negotiations he's likely to make that one of his key agenda items and it will be interesting to see how much progress he can actually make. Um, but I, I did, I did note with interest the sort of, I won't say the rubbing of the hand, but the sort of gleeful uh, suggestion that you know this is a kind of a hospital pass that Fine Gael were managed to get off their books. Yeah, I could well, <laughs> I could well believe it. I mean, just a couple of things about it. First of all, what's interesting is even the McMahon report, which was supposed to revise and improve the whole system, that has not been fulfilled to any extent at all. And those were relatively modest. Uh, adjustments that 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 expert group under former Judge Brian McMahon brought in, that was not implemented. The other thing is, yes, I think the system that's there is wrong, particularly the, for profit element, because it incentivizes some, and not all by any means, but some operators to cut costs wherever they can, which basically impacts on the quality of life for some of the most vulnerable people in, in the world in some instances. Uh, but having said that, 7,000 people, you're going to have to find a specific system because the idea of if you were to just put 7,000 people on the housing waiting list, for instance, you'd be very fearful of what that could kick up, unfortunately, um, the nature of these things. But it'll be very interesting to see how he gets on. On the subject of the Green Party, Danny, uh, the Green Party now are also facing into the leadership issue. Following on Friday, I, I certainly didn't predict it whatsoever. I don't know about you, but I think it was a resounding majority in terms of about, what was it, about 75% of the Green Party membership agreed to the programme for government. Does that tilt in Eamon Ryan's favour, uh, the, the, the leadership um, contest between himself and Catherine Martin? I would have thought so. Uh, I would have been of the view that it's a ringing endorsement of Eamon Ryan's decision to not only go go into the process of negotiation for government, but it's the vindication of his uh, desire to uh, you know deal with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and it kind of highlights a lack of support for Catherine Martin's opposition to the deal. It puts her also in a very difficult position. To be fair, Shantani, publicly she certainly wasn't opposed to the deal. She was opposed initially, but... No, she was, sorry. And I was just going to clarify that the, the point in terms of that her, her position uh, is somewhat uh, troubled or, or, you know, her, her standing is somewhat threatened, I think, by the fact that she did oppose going in in the, in the initial state. But the fact that she subsequently was nominated as their lead uh, negotiator and then essentially took ownership of the deal and then approved it, it kind of weakens her argument for challenging Eamon Ryan for the leadership. I mean, if they're in agreement about going into government, they're in agreement about the deal, the programme for government that they've just negotiated, the argument is, and you've just won a record number of seats, you've won a record number of seats at European level, local level, and at national level. Why would you change your leader then if you're in agreement with them in terms of policy? You know, her arguments are, are, are essentially kind of reduced down to personalities. And while personalities are definitely important, and clearly the critics within the Green Party have argued that it's Eamon Ryan's lack of attractability or, you know, to, to rural Ireland is one of the main reasons why they're plumping for Catherine Martin and her, that she would just have a much better chance of attracting voters from rural Ireland. Um, 
you know, I think that's a much narrower argument than what I think we would have initially been faced two or three weeks ago, you know, when we were talking, we were kind of much more in the space of a fundamental split about the direction of the Green Party. But the fact that Eamon Ryan, Eamon Ryan and Catherine Martin are both in agreement on the deal, have both agreed to go into government, are both now sitting at the Cabinet table, you know, her ground for arguing for change is far more narrow. And that's why I think that will tilt the balance in favour of Eamon Ryan. Okay, and finally, Danny, um, Sinn Féin, big day for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, for perhaps not as far as they're concerned, the best of reasons last Saturday. Big day for Sinn Féin too. They're now biggest party in opposition, well positioned. Be interesting to see how they get on. Hugely significant that Sinn Féin now will be, you know, the first party to challenge the government on leaders' questions three days a week now. They, they, as you say, are the biggest party in opposition. Mary Lou MacDonald is the first female, essentially, leader of the biggest party in opposition in the history of the state, which is significant in itself. What it will be very interesting, Mick, is that, you know, after the local and European elections in 2019, Sinn Féin, you know, having taken a a pretty significant bruising at the polls that day, changed their approach. You know, they had been seen as too negative, too hostile, you know, not constructive enough in their approach in terms of, um, you know, in terms of dealing with policy issues. They then obviously softened their approach in the run-up to the 2020 general election, and that clearly resonated with people. But what will be key, interesting to watch is whether or not they go back to that more full-blooded opposition where it's all no, 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 and anger, 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 and kind of you're terrible in everything that you do, or whether or not they seek to kind of walk that line of being more constructive, agreeing with the government by times, you know, looking to be more reasonable in their approach, softening their, per, you know, kind of abandoning the sort of personalised attacks which they've been known uh, to engage in in the past. So that will be one of the interesting dynamics uh, to watch. It will also be very interesting to see Mary Lou Macdonald spar up against Michal Martin at Leaders' Questions. She's obviously been sparring up against Leo Varadkar for the last, you know, um, three years or so. But it'd be very interesting now to see how she engages with Michal Martin as Taoiseach and, and leader of the opposition. Um, and but you know they're part they're in they're in a they're in a very significant position. I thought it was very interesting though through all the debate yesterday. You the likes of Alan Kelly, you the likes of uh, Richard O'Donoghue, and other uh, opposition parties and, and independents really have a pop at Sinn Fein as to their willingness to, to really go into government. They basically accuse them of walking themselves off the pitch earlier on. They didn't really want to go into government. They always wanted to be in opposition, but yes, have been kind of playing the poor mate as to being excluded. I thought the consistency of that line of attack certainly did undermine Mary Lou Macdonald's claims that, you know, they were the agents of change. And I think what has certainly gone, looked somewhat incongruous is, you know, you've had uh, several numbers and uh, several members of Sinn Féin post, you know, pictures that, you know, Mary Lou is my Taoiseach, you know, and uh, she was asked about this on radio and she said, well, that's true in a literal sense that she is their chief you know, rather than being the teacher of the country. It's a bit of a, a mealy-mouthed explanation, but I just didn't, like, there seems to be a reluctance to accept that the reality that they didn't have a majority. You know, they only won 24% of the vote, but yet have been claiming to be the agents of change, the the, the, the rightful owners of, the rightful leaders of the country, and have been denied and shut out by everybody else. I don't buy that argument. I never have bought that argument. You know, you know the people who managed to get to 51% are the people who have the right to run the country. The Green Party... Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have, have gone way well beyond that, that that threshold in terms of the doll seats that they or the doll support that they got last night uh, for running the country. So that's it. That's the, that's the game. And uh, Sinn Féin, for all their harping and, and giving out, uh, can do precious little about it. Danny, as ever, thanks very much for joining us in the podcast. That's Danny McConnell, political editor of the Irish Examiner. I'd like to thank uh, JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at, at mickcliff. 
See you again soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.